Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. I'm Pat Salber, and I'm with the American Journal of Managed Care, and it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Sandeep, known as Bobby Reddy. Dr. Reddy is an oncologist at the UCLA School of Medicine and the Chief Medical Officer of Nant Health. Nant Health is a healthcare cloud-based information technology company that converges science and technology through a single integrated clinical platform in order to provide actionable, that's the key word, health information at the point of care. And we invited Dr. Reddy today to talk about a, a topic that I've been thinking about ever since the lockdown, which for me was started March 8th, and that is the clinical care of cancer patients in the age of COVID. So welcome, Dr. Reddy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So my first question is, are cancer patients at increased risk to get COVID-19? And I want to I ask that question both while they're getting their treatment, say chemotherapy, which would uh, cause them to be immunosuppressed, but also whether they're at increased risk when they're in remission. I think it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting question because despite so many cases and, and so much time that's elapsed, I think the answer, unfortunately, is we don't necessarily really know. Um, however, what we do know is that cancer patients, both patients who are actively being treated and patients who have recovered from treatment, are at a higher risk of mortality if they do, um, do contract the virus. So there's data from both China and Italy showing very significantly increased um, risk of, of, of death. Uh, in cancer patients and, and again, post-cancer patients. The thought being that because of the immune compromise, they will develop a more severe form of the disease uh, and end up having you know, hospitalization, ICU stay, and then ultimately an increased risk of mortality. Now, we would surmise that those same factors would also lead to an increased risk of contracting the disease but we, we haven't actually seen that epidemiologically. Um, it seems like you know, the cancer population is being affected at about the same rate as the general population. And that could be because cancer patients are smart enough to know that they have cancer and therefore are taking even uh, greater precautions to avoid uh, contracting the disease. So, and, and maybe the people around them, their caregivers and, and other members of the community are aware that someone has cancer. And so they're behaving appropriately in terms of social distancing. They're be behaving appropriately in terms of wearing masks and, and other you know, protective measures that we can take. So, um, so I think that's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Yes, um, unfortunately, cancer patients are at a higher risk of, of, of a bad event with COVID but uh, they may be just at the same risk as the general population of contracting the disease. And do you recommend that they use N95 masks, medical grade masks, as opposed to what all the rest of our, us are using, which are just you know cloth masks or home, homemade cloth masks? Well, it's, so that gets to an interesting, uh, I think, point about the use of masks and, and, and you know, why we have masks and this big debate that we're having in the country, which is really quite frankly, I think unfortunate and unnecessary because the masks don't actually protect the wearer. And this is, I think, a, a great misconception. So the purpose of the mask is to protect everyone else. 
And so if, if we as a society wore masks, meaning everyone, maybe for a month, we would probably have zero COVID because the virus would not be able to spread and infect new people. The mask, when you cover your face, effectively reduces transmission by about 99%, no matter which mask you wear. Now, an N95 mask, a tight-fitting mask, will reduce the likelihood of any viral particles getting to a wearer, but the, the critical reason that we should all wear masks is to prevent transmission. And so if, if you cough or you sneeze or you, you even breathe very heavily, you're panting or something, all of the virus particles that will be expressed from, from your mouth or nose will be trapped by the mask. And so somebody else who's nearby will not contract the virus. And even if a tiny fraction of viral particles gets out there, that's probably below the threshold that's gonna cause a very severe uh, infection. So the type of mask is kind of irrelevant. The key is face covering. And, and the key is actually that people are aware, patients certainly, but everyone is aware, you don't protect yourself by wearing the mask. You're protecting everyone. And so if you enter an environment where you have a mask, but everyone else doesn't have a mask, that's a dangerous environment. And um, people just need to be cognizant of that fact and know that, okay, they need to definitely appropriate socially distance, but also probably insist on others wearing their masks or, or face coverings and, and taking the right precautions. Uh, unlike, unlike people who don't have cancer, even people with some chronic illnesses, people with cancer cannot completely avoid going to a clinical setting, a doctor's office, an infusion center, a hospital um, to get their uh, treatments or to have complications looked at. So I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what the best practices are for um, uh, patients things that patients should be looking for before going to one of these places. Uh, I actually had to have surgery in the middle of, of the pandemic. And I can tell you that I was very careful about being sure that where I got my surgery, they practiced all of the precautions that, that I knew about that I would expect. So what would you tell to patients? What should they ask for? What should they look for? And what should they be doing themselves before they end up in one of these facilities? There's a, a lot of things that uh, we've learned from COVID um, that I think, you know, hopefully will uh, be continued afterwards. And, uh, you know, with respect to, to how we practice in terms of the day-to-day -day environment, a lot of things that we knew that we should be doing, but maybe we were lax in doing, um, we are now doing with, with, you know, reckless abandon. And so we've really taken safety to another level, uh, meaning the use of, of PPE or personal protective equipment for, for healthcare professionals, but also patients, uh, being able to kind of triage screening of patients. And so um, my children are, are older, but when they were young and we take them to the pediatrician, there would be two waiting rooms, a sick waiting room and a healthy waiting room. And, you know, a normal doctor's office, oncologist's office, we don't do that. And, and to some extent, we've now moved to sort of a, an ability to do that where we would try to physically separate patients in a way so that they can be um, contained in, in a safe environment. Uh, for example, when patients have an outpatient appointment, 
we don't ask them to come in and wait in a large room with others. We tell them to sit in their car and we text them to come in directly to exam room three or exam room four so that uh, they have minimal contact with others. And while they're being checked in, they're checked in in a, in a single location away from others where their temperature can be taken and, and they can be triaged so that we can understand, is this a high risk person or, or a normal risk person? So I, I think some of these practices that we've put in place are, are critical now, uh, but also maybe critical going forward to reduce the risk of other infections. Uh, every year, you know, we have the flu and we have a significant amount of hospitalizations and even deaths attributed to that. And this would be the, the same kind of situation where we can use these strategies, these techniques that we've developed uh, to, to also help uh, you know, mitigate the, the, the problems associated with flu or other infections. So I think for patients, they have to be aware that, number one, that good safety practices are being uh, put in place. So that means, again, PPE across the board, um, and, and insistence that everybody's wearing a mask, as I mentioned earlier, uh, that there's some triage you know, mechanism that's put in place so patients are screened, so that you know and you can feel safe and comfortable in that environment that you're not going to be exposed to someone else who may be um, infected. You, you mean tested for COVID before their surgery? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think when we think about elective versus non-elective, I mean, certainly when there's emergent things, I mean, we have emergency rooms for a reason. If emergencies happen, we need to deal with things as they come up. If there's a car accident, you know, you don't have time to test. I think everything else that's elective and at the very onset of, of the epidemic, the pandemic, many hospitals, we were putting off elective procedures. We were deferring them. And so anything that can be deferred should be deferred until you know that it's a really safe environment. But certainly um, we should we should be able to understand that everybody involved in the care of a patient needs to be routinely screened. Um, we, you know, for example, uh, many businesses are doing routine screening now of their workforce, and they're catching people who may be asymptomatic but actually have the virus, and then they can send those people home, and they can avoid risking infection across their whole, you know, enterprise. So these types of mechanisms are now in place. We're not doing that across the whole healthcare continuum because we can't; it's too expensive. But we can do it in in you know bits and pieces where the highest risk exposures are. So for example, in the ICU, we really want to minimize the, the risk of exposing patients to COVID. So we need to test maybe those people, those nurses who are there, you know, and, and, and screen them to make sure that they're not exhibiting signs and symptoms of the disease. So uh, these types of procedures, and I think lastly, I would also say in the nursing home setting, where we've seen really horrendous um, mortality amongst nursing home residents, putting in place strategies to screen visitors, but also screen the workers who are there, the healthcare workers, the, uh, to make sure that we're not either infecting our nursing home uh, populace, but also taking the infection from there and spreading it into the community. So a lot of measures have been put in place and we just have to respect them and make sure that we, uh, we follow those rules and guidelines. Yeah, well, that's really, that's good to hear. Uh, the, more, the more testing we can get done and the sooner we can get the results, the better. Uh, what I wanted to do now is to talk about what it's like to be a cancer patient in the age of COVID. I, I actually have, 
you know, one friend who's um, stable on a maintenance drug and another friend who's having to go through another round of chemotherapy. And, and it raises a lot of different uh, questions, particularly now with the resurgence of the virus and the contemplation that perhaps we're going to shut down again. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on three different scenarios for patients. The first one is, what would you tell patients in the middle of chemotherapy or other cancer therapies, say uh, radiation therapy, for example, um, about, um, about their safety, their risks, uh, any delays that would be considered acceptable, and so forth? Yeah, I guess it depends on the goals of therapy. And, and certainly, um, we have uh, attempted to kind of partition the patients into two groups. So those who are treating with curative intent, and we think we can cure them, we're going to push to not make any changes whatsoever uh, because we are pushing for a cure. And that is critical. That's our first and foremost goal. We have a limited opportunity to do that in a patient with this diagnosis. And so that's our, that's our primary motivation and concern. But on the other hand, patients who we're treating uh, for palliation of their disease, we have to, to weigh the risks and benefits. And does intensifying their cancer treatment come at a higher risk, um, as we discussed earlier, of mortality from COVID? So uh, when, when we look at those you know, uh, scenarios, the, the equation's a little bit different. And um, we, we, try, we try now to favor uh, looking at, can we delay treatments? Can we um, change the schedule of treatments so they're maybe spaced out, they're less often? to avoid contact with the healthcare system? Can we um, uh, add uh, oral therapy to replace IV therapy so that, uh, again, patients can be at home and have that convenience? Can we schedule laboratory visits to be as uh, an outpatient or a home visit, home phlebotomy to avoid the patient coming in contact with the healthcare system? Uh, so there's, there's a lot of things that have, have changed uh, over time to allow us to do that. And we're taking advantage of that now. And I think for, for those patients who are in the middle of therapy, that's, that's how we approach it for sure, that we want to triage them. Those who we think we can cure, we're going to push to do that. Those who maybe we can't, we want to be cognizant of, of the fact that there's a virus and we want to tailor uh, those treatments, but it's on an individual basis, of course. And, and I'm assuming that the patients are involved in, in the decision and when they are, you know, all the uh, cancer patients that I've known have, have always, even though you tell them this is palliation, they're still holding out hope for a cure. How do you actually approach that with a, with a patient who um, you've, you've decided or cl clinically should be getting palliative therapy and are they accepting this delay? Yeah, I, I think that the patients who are getting palliative therapy, um, for the most part, we're not in a position where we're going to delay people for an extended period of time. So, you know, we realized early on, this isn't going away. This is going to be a very significant problem that's going to last for a long time. And so we can't, we can't just say, well, we'll wait, you know, six months. That's just not acceptable with this disease. And so um, we, we, are, we are getting people started on therapy. It may be that we might start somebody at a slightly lower dose because we're, we're cognizant of the fact that uh, a really high dose may increase their significant, you know, significantly increase the risk of getting uh, a neutropenic fever, or getting infected, ending up in the hospital. So we might start them lower and then increase. Uh, patients do understand this. They understand the risks and benefits. We always try to 
uh, have that very detailed conversation up front. I think some of the differences are certainly that during the pandemic, it's been, uh, I think, a more isolating experience for the patient. So for example, in the past, it would be very routine if somebody was newly diagnosed and you saw them as an inpatient consultation in the hospital, that you would have a big family meeting because lots of people would be visiting. Now, those visitors are no longer allowed in, in the room or in the hospital at all. And so that conversation is happening as a one-on-one. Uh, we are taking advantage of telemedicine, certainly, and we're, we're having those telemedicine uh, visits with patients, and we're trying to do that also with family members and having, you know, the son or daughter or whomever that might be living in a different state, having them still be able to be involved in that conversation has actually been really beneficial. Uh, I found it very beneficial. In the, in the past, it was very difficult. You'd be, you know, you're very busy as a physician. Can you be calling everyone back? Now you can just schedule a time and say, we're all going to have a Zoom. We're going to get on at, at such and such time. We're going to talk through the issues and everyone's questions are answered. So um, it's different. Is it better? Is it worse? It's hard to say. I think over time, you know, we, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out what, what works and what doesn't. But uh, that is one difference I can tell you. The other difference I can tell you is that um, one of the things what we've done across the board is the shortening of therapy. And, and what does that mean? Well, there are certain uh, radiation schedules that can be reduced by perhaps increasing the dose slightly so, so we can change it to what's called a hypofractionated radiation schedule. There's certain uh, clinical trial data that shows, do you need to take a year of therapy or could you get by with six months? Do you need to take six months of adjuvant chemotherapy or could you get by with three months? And so we are looking at reducing the length of time for some patients going on therapy because the data says, well, they're pretty equivalent. They're almost the same. Should we try to you know, decrease someone's exposure to toxic medicine during COVID? Yes, we should. And so that I think you're seeing across the board across multiple diseases. You know, it's really interesting as I listen to you um, thinking about how awful the pandemic is, but how it's forced our hands in terms of really rethinking how we deliver care. So who would have thought that we'd be having FaceTime conversations in the ICU with patients and family members? And, and who would have thought that we would move perhaps more rapidly to have shortened courses or alternative courses um, that will help people to avoid exposures uh, that could be lethal to them? So, you know, there is some upside in terms of this driving change in the delivery system. I think there is. There absolutely is. And and I, I mean, I should I should mention that this is a very unique situation in that. I don't want to paint it with too broad a brush. In other words, in April, uh, I think oncologists in New York City and, and maybe Detroit uh, were, were under siege. And I think it was very reasonable to perhaps opt for a regimen that maybe even had a lower efficacy, but certainly had a lower risk of, of hospitalization, of infection, of complication. And you know, an oncologist, let's say in Phoenix at that time, certainly would not have chosen that because why would you? There was absolutely no risk uh, in, in the general populace. And now that's completely flipped. And so I think what's important is also re to recognize it's a very dynamic, changing situation. And the, the knowledge that there might be a bed available in the hospital or in the ICU absolutely informs our decision making. 
whether we admit that or not, I mean, there's a daily census and, you know, I would never pay attention to the daily census before. And now I receive it as a text message telling me how many ICU beds are available. And I, I'm looking at that and it's, it's ever present in the back of my mind. Um, so I think that that's, that is a definite change in how we're practicing. But, but again, some of the modern, uh, technology developments, particularly telemedicine, which I think we've all been waiting for and hoping that telemedicine was going to be this, this thing that we could do, but it hadn't gotten there. The, the pandemic has really brought that to the forefront, that we, we have the ability to coordinate care virtually in a way we never could do before. So we can actually have, as I said, multiple family members, but you could also have multiple doctors. We can, we've had virtual tumor boards in the past, but those were one-offs. But now that's how all tumor boards are being conducted for the most part. At least there was a stretch where that's how tumor board was being conducted. I can see the value in that going forward because it does allow you to have more people participate. It also um, untethers you from sort of a location and even a time. It allows things to be uh, attended by more, more people, a broader spectrum of people, and it allows you to disseminate information across a broader group of people. So um, that's a big advantage, and it's my fervent hope that we do carry some of these lessons forward you know, uh, when, once the pandemic ends. Absolutely. I mean, this was facilitated in part by uh, congressional actions that reduced some, you know, barriers to telemedicine that have been hard to break down, like having to have a license in every state, not getting paid as much as if it was an inpatient visit, all those things. And of course, they're all on the line again. So I hope everybody that's listening will pay attention to this and contact their representative and make sure that these uh, barriers that were brought down remain um, remain. A, 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 you know, not part of how telemedicine is conducted, so we can um, really take full advantage of it. Um, so I have um, a, a, another question, which is, um, and, and it's really going to be a two-part. What would you do with somebody who discovers something worrisome? So, for for example, a breast lump that hasn't yet been diagnosed. And the second part of that question is, uh, is there evidence that people in that situation have been avoiding seeking care. Um, you know, it's put out there as one of the downsides of the lockdown that people were ignoring uh, getting healthcare that they needed. How, how much evidence is there for that? And what would you say to somebody who, who is sitting there, you know, worried over a lump or a change in a mole or, or something along those lines um, in the middle of the pandemic? Sure. It's been a big, I think, issue um, that, uh, most clinicians are, are very cognizant of, which is that the volume of referrals has decreased. And we've seen that not just in oncology, but we've seen that across almost every discipline in medicine. Uh, there, was, there was a headline, I think, in, in the newspaper saying, where, where are the MIs? Where are the myocardial infarctions? Uh, we know that there's been uh, less utilization of healthcare services uh, certainly initially in the pandemic. And that was because I think there was a broad appeal by hospitals and, and basically even the government saying, look, if you're not sick, don't overtax the system because we have to get ready for a giant surge of COVID patients. And in certain, as I said, in certain locations, that's been happening on kind of a rolling basis across the country where we've seen hospitals fill up. But in other places, that hasn't happened. And I think, again, on a location-dependent manner, certainly people should feel very comfortable 
presenting to, to their doctor, even for routine care. Uh, but, but a lump or something concerning that's, that's you know, potentially malignant, that's urgent and that shouldn't be delayed. And, and absolutely people have to, I cannot uh, you know, overstate the necessity that A, it's, it's safe to go to your physician. Things have been put in place now. It's different than it was in say February or March, certainly, where measures are in place where it is safe and you can at least get that biopsy, you can get that x-ray, you can get that CT scan, ultrasound, whatever, to have that checked out and that initial evaluation can, can be done for the most part in most places. So I would not want somebody to delay that. Uh, but we do have the evidence that that was occurring. It's been occurring not just in cancer, as I said, but across all uh, diseases where there's certainly less diagnoses occurring than the expected rate. We, we think that at some point, is that going to be a three-month, six-month delay, but there'll be a flood of catch-up as these new patients you know, come in and we catch up to that and we get uh, more surgical procedures, more diagnostic procedures, more definitive um, treatments in, in place. We, we hope that that's not happening. We hope, in fact, that the populace has gotten much healthier and that actually there's going to be less cancer and less severe illnesses. Um, but, you know, that's unlikely. It's probably that there is a delay. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I really hope that everybody listening uh, understands if you've got a problem, you, you've got to go take care of it. Uh, delaying it is not going to be uh, helpful. It's just it's going to be harmful. And it is a safe uh, place to go to your doctor and get treatment, um, as long as your doctor is following some of the things that we talked about earlier. They have PPE in place. They have you know, a triage system. Um, it should be uh, safer than probably a lot of the other places like we talked about when you're out you know, in the community and people aren't wearing masks. You're much safer going to the doctor where everyone's wearing a mask, everyone's being checked out uh, and monitored. So thank you. That very powerful message. And uh, I hope everybody who's listening, if this is a concern of yours or, or somebody you know, that you take this to heart. And if you need to get care, go and get care. It's safe. Thank you. Uh, so um, I had just a couple of questions about changes in treatment. You answered some of them that, you've, that you are um, looking at shortening treatments, um, delivering them perhaps at home if possible, and um, changing in the frequency, backing off if the person is in palliative care compared to curative care. And um, one specific question is, what about um, changes in supportive treatments, uh, blood transfusions, growth factors, things like that? Have, have there been any, any changes in your approach to that? Well, there have been. So at the onset of the uh, pandemic, there were guidelines that were put out uh, by various organizations, including ASCO, for example, that uh, essentially relaxed, and the NCCN as well, relaxed some of the uh, uh, kind of requirements to use growth factors. And this was for, I think, two reasons. Uh, the first critical reason was so that we wouldn't overtax the, the, the system itself by patients requiring uh, blood transfusions, blood products such as platelets, um, and, and, and number two, to uh, potentially avoid, again, hospitalization. Uh, if people were using growth factors, uh, maybe they would have less risk of, of developing neutropenic fever. And so we, we have seen an increase in that. Um, the, the good thing is that you know, the blood supply at this point has not been 
uh, you know, jeopardized severely. Um, there, there is enough uh, donation still ongoing. Um, I would certainly encourage people to continue to donate. And, and what's very important now is actually if, if people have recovered from COVID-19, there's a strong need to get convalescent plasma. We know that convalescent plasma from those patients can be used uh, very successfully to treat other people, uh, very sick people, and, and can actually you know, rescue them from, from death's door. So uh, that's a, an incredible resource. But uh, to answer your question, yes, uh, growth factor utilization has increased. Uh, I think that you know, when, we, when we think about um, how we approached this before, we knew that growth factors for the, were for the most part safe. You know, so, so we knew we could do this. And the reason we just didn't give it to people willy-nilly was that there's a cost associated with that. Uh, there's an expense, and maybe it's an unnecessary expense because somebody doesn't need to have too many white blood cells or too many red blood cells. They need to have the right amount. So and just so, to clarify, we're talking about the drugs that increase red cells and white cells. And, that's uh, correct, yes. Yeah, so so we get we give people these shots so that they can maintain their blood counts rather than having them drop once they're given chemotherapy or radiation, and we we know that again for the most part these are you know reasonably safe drugs, so it was very easy to relax these these guidelines or these restrictions because we knew we could probably do this safely, um, and we knew what the immediate impact would be, that for the most part. People would not, you know, get acutely ill because we wouldn't give them too many. We don't. We, we know not to do that because that can actually be painful and, and there could be some side effects. And and we knew that in the short term, we wanted to do this because there may be a, a, a reduction in the blood donation that's ongoing. What we're seeing now is that I think for the most part, doctors are pretty comfortable with kind of going back to what the normal standard of practice was. You know, um, we, we, it's what I said earlier, if you're in a place where you know that there's going to be an ICU bed, you know there's going to be a hospital bed, you can kind of go back to practicing medicine the way that you've been practicing it because you have comfort that the system is there. It's not going to be overtaxed. And it's the same for growth factors. Um, so that's, the, that, that's, I guess, the, the short answer is that initially we did make some changes, but for the most part, we're drifting back to kind of normalcy because we know that the healthcare system can absorb uh, a normal volume of patients and, and uh, still, you know, function. I'm going to ask you a question that people that I know with cancer are always asking, and oftentimes they turn outside of the traditional medical system for help with this, and that is the answer to the question, hey, what can I do to strengthen my immune system? What do you tell your patients when they ask you that, and, and what works? And what doesn't? Well, that's a that's a I mean that's a really good and, and difficult question. Um, we, you know, we we know that there's a lot of things that don't work <laughs> that 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 people will 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 do um, herbs and, and other supplements. I mean, you know, echinacea was very popular, but but these may cause minimal transient changes, but are not going to be really meaningful changes. To, to improve somebody's immune function. The biggest things are maintaining a generally good uh, overall health status. Um, and, that, and that's also 
uh, important to have an overall sort of emotional health well-being, which is very difficult during these very stressful times where people are besieged by by not just a pandemic, but all kinds of other you know social uh, unrest and things that are happening. Uh, we know that uh, emotional well-being is actually very critical for the immune system to function. And so anything that can relieve stress is, is absolutely critical. So I tell my patients stress relief is, is important, whether that be you know prayer, meditation, yoga, you name it, whatever it takes, but that's critical. I think um, exercise is critical. Um, yes, you can get out. Yes, you can go exercise. No, the gyms are closed, but that doesn't mean you can't exercise. And so uh, physical uh, activity, exercise, um, getting some vitamin D, some fresh air, those are all very helpful. I can tell you that, um, I'll give you like a specific example of, of, of some of the things that we are avoiding. We, there, there are medications that we give that can uh, adversely impact immune function, and there's medications we can give that can improve it. So when we think about our, our patients, for example, who let's say have had uh, a transplant, an autologous stem cell transplant, uh, we will give them uh, maintenance therapy post-transplant. And that maintenance therapy uh, can be associated with immune suppression. And so we're very careful to really be picking and choosing those patients. And patients who've been on maintenance for a while and have exhibited no um, you know, signs or symptoms of relapse whatsoever, we're monitoring them for something called minimal residual disease. And if it looks like they're really in uh, true remission and have been so for a while, we might shorten that course of maintenance. So there's a drug called rituximab, which we might give for three years after an autologous transplant for a mantle cell lymphoma patient. And it's really only a very marginal benefit in terms of reducing their risk of relapse. Uh, if it's been a couple of years, I, I, you know, uh, we have patients who are taking off uh, maintenance right now because we know that drug in particular uh, it de it depletes their B cells, which are a type of lymphocyte, which you need to fight off you know, a viral infection. Similarly, patients who have CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, we will give them um, pooled immunoglobulin, IVIG, to help them fight off uh, infections, including pneumonia. Well, we also know that, you know, as I said earlier, convalescent plasma, so immunoglobulin, might help fight COVID. So we're certainly using immunoglobulin now in, in, in those patients, but now uh, I've been measuring it in, in other patients to see if they're low. And if they're very low, uh, I've been, I've been su supplementing their uh, immune system with that to help them through this period. So there are things that we can do medically, but I think the most important thing for patients to do is be, be safe, be healthy, uh, eat healthy, and definitely reduce your stress and try to exercise. And, and those are things that are all within their control. So um, I definitely motivate them to try to do that. Great advice. Thank you. Exercise, get rid of stress, and uh... <laughs> avoid the echinacea. It won't help. So I have one last question. This is kind of a speculative question, and uh, maybe you won't have an answer to it, but I'm going to ask anyway. I trained uh, in internal medicine at UCSF at the time of the HIV pandemic, and we learned such an amazing amount about immunology from that pandemic, from from that virus. And I'm assuming that COVID-19 is, is doing the same thing now. It's teaching us a lot about the incredible complexity of the immune system. And since the immune system is intimately involved in the development and, 
and treatment of cancer. Are there any new insights about cancer, its etiology, um, its treatment, its natural history that we might have already learned from COVID? Uh, it's, it's hard to say whether we, I think that whether we've learned you know, spectacularly new things yet. I think that some of the approaches that we were trying to develop for cancer, we can easily port over to uh, COVID. And the question will become whether some of the new novel approaches that we're using to treat COVID-19 or, or its related uh, symptoms uh, can be used to treat cancer or other diseases. So I can tell you that, for example, within um, the Nant family of companies, uh, we've been we've been actively involved in a cancer vaccine program using an adenovirus uh, uh, backbone, so similar to like the Moderna vaccine. And so we've been also uh, working on, as a result, a COVID vaccine. So that, that kind of learning from the cancer arena, we can transport into the infectious disease arena. And then vice versa, uh, people have been actively now using, uh, as I mentioned earlier, convalescent plasma, but also using um, stem cell therapy, there's good reports from both Italy and, and China using uh, stem cells to reverse the tissue damage done uh, by, um, by COVID-19, particularly in the lungs. And that becomes a very, very exciting opportunity to reverse other forms of, of you know, severe tissue injury um, that we see as a, a sequelae, let's say from radiation therapy or, or even chemotherapy uh, treatments that we, we, we use for cancer. So um, I think that there is going to be a lot of learnings. Um, it's, it's unfortunate that we have to learn because of a pandemic. We don't want that. Uh, but but uh, I guess if there's a silver lining to this dark cloud, um, we can learn a lot of new things, new techniques, perfect these techniques. Um, certainly the regulatory environment right now is a little bit different and is allowing the pace of clinical trials and new developments maybe to go a little bit faster than they would otherwise. Um, because we, we have this acute need. And so that will allow us to, to gain new knowledge, um, which hopefully will take us into new places, not just in cancer, but other diseases. Well, that's great, a great, uh, great summation. Um, so I was gonna wrap up now. I'm wondering if we covered all the aspects of the impact of COVID on oncology and on the lives of cancer patients. Is there anything else that you'd like to um, add or, um, or any summary that you would like to give? Um, wow, that's a, <laughs> I think it's a, I, we did cover a lot of things. Um, I'm thinking the one thing that's kind of near and dear to my heart is clinical trials. And so I will mention that um, at the outset of the pandemic, uh, there was certainly a lot of fear about what would happen with clinical trials. And um, there were certain organizations that stopped, you know, enrolling, let's say, patients on clinical trials. Then the FDA did come out very quickly, to their credit, with guidance documents about how to conduct clinical trials during uh, the pandemic. And that relied heavily on the use of, of telehealth, you know, to, to work through monitoring uh, of, of these patients through alternative mechanisms so that you know, you don't have to physically come in to be seen. And uh, there were streamlined uh, trial designs, uh, a reduction in clinical trial-related patient visits, and, and even, you know, reduction in sort of sponsor and CRO uh, site visits, uh, so on and so forth, that I think are, A, number one, really valuable, because I think they'll improve the patient experience. 
and B, can reduce the cost and difficulty associated with clinical trials, and then C, are things we can actually continue doing. There's no reason that we have to stop doing those things. If they work now and we can still function and continue to enroll patients on trials, we can keep doing that. And so that can ultimately benefit everyone because it'll reduce the cost, it'll improve the access, so more people will have access to, to new treatments. And ultimately that's gonna help us get to new, you know, new treatments for sick people faster. And uh, so I see that as a big opportunity um, that we are actually doing today and we can take forward um, if we're smart about it. So to me, that, that was, that's one thing that's come out of this that I believe will be, will be a good thing. Uh, it's, it's come at a cost certainly that, that we don't want to bear, but uh, we have to be uh, very aware of, of these changes and, and not you know, reflexively say, okay, well, the pandemic is lifted, let's go back to business as usual. We should take a, a really careful look and say, hmm, this does work. Uh, maybe this doesn't, but this does. And, and pick and choose that, not just for obviously for clinical trials, but across the healthcare system. And if we do that, then we'll end up uh, you know, in a better place. And, and you know, God forbid it happens again, we'll be prepared to handle the next pandemic and the next one or the next one, because we'll have systems in place that are absolutely tested and ready to go. Well, I, I agree with you. It's, uh, uh, I've been through so many rounds of healthcare reform in my career, and I think COVID-19 is doing something that no, no amount of health policy uh, gurus has been able to do, and that's to disrupt the system enough that, we started, that we're starting to put in new, hopefully more effective approaches, which I agree with you, hopefully we don't reverse after the pandemic's over, but we continue to evolve our system to better need, meet the needs of, of uh, our patients in our communities. So I wanna thank you very much, Dr. Reddy. This was an absolutely wonderful conversation. I think we covered a lot of things. I hope we answered the questions of both our uh, uh, clinician listeners, but also our patient listeners about uh, what to do with clinical care in the age of COVID. So thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate uh, the questions and the opportunity. This was great. To learn more about how COVID-19 is affecting care delivery, see the show notes or visit AJMC.com. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us. 